Anthony Christian Ocampo, Ph.D., is professor of sociology at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. He is the author of The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race, and his new book, Brown and Gay in L.A., The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Thank you for joining us this evening, Anthony, and congratulations on the publication of this incredible book. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm really excited to talk to you. Talk a bit about your background and when you first started noticing the connection between Filipinos and Latinos as a child or teenager or young adult. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm from Los Angeles, specifically Northeast Los Angeles, and I grew up in a neighborhood called Eagle Rock, which, um, you know, I know a lot of your audience is in the Bay Area, so you can imagine like a city much like Daly City <laughs> or, or, or Union City, where you have Filipinos living alongside Mexican-Americans, going to the same schools, going to the same churches, um, being in the same shopping plazas. And so that proximity gave me a lot of opportunity to just bear witness to the overlaps between Filipino and Latino cultures, everything from the foods we eat to last names to religion, obviously, to um, everyday words in Filipino languages and Spanish being the same. Uh, I think about like, you know, the thing on my top is a camiseta or the thing on my legs is a pantalones or the things on my feet are zapatos or I write on a desk that's a mesa. So, you know, there was these overlaps that I that were really hard to ignore. And I I thought, hey, how come I don't see a lot written about this, um, this, this connection between these two groups? Um, and I think it's because, you know, Filipinos are from the Philippines, which is a country in Asia. So they automatically get categorized as Asian. But here I was seeing these like strong... Um, connections between themselves, uh, Filipinos themselves and, and Latinos as well. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and so talk about your family. Talk about your parents, um, grandparents, you know, their, you, you know, your background uh, when it comes to your family and, and your experience as the son of immigrants. Yeah, I'm I'm an only child. <laughs> uh, my parents migrated to the States uh, in 1980. I think they were in late. They were in their late twenties or thirty. They got married, and eight months later, I was born in LA. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up. In, even though I was an only child, I grew up in a home that had a revolving door of other family members coming through, especially those that were going to settle in the U.S. So, you know, I lived with my both of my grandmothers lived with us at some point. Uncles, aunts, cousins. So, even though I wasn't. I didn't have any siblings. I was I was exposed to a lot of like multi generational family dynamics um, that you know kept me kept me tethered to um, Filipino culture and and Filipino language in ways that I, I feel very lucky about today. We were you sort of always from from the time you you were a young child or maybe a teen were you always sort of aware of of immigration issues like how. Being a child of immigrants or your parents, how you all were impacted by immigration policy, the way folks thought it, were starting to think about immigrants in the 80s, even though we're a country of immigrants. Um, you know, what, what did that feel like? When did that sort of that go off for you, um, you know, as as a sort of thinking, thinking young person? Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't aware. 
of immigration politics or any related issues like, uh, for example, as a kid, um, I learned later in life that I had family members that were undocumented or as Filipinos would say, uh, tago ng tago, which is, is Tagalog for always hiding. Um, and, and I was aware that my, my parents migrated here you know you get the story i want to i want a better life for myself but my mom's a nurse and so i you can't help but realize later that there's this there was this big push to hire filipino nurses because there were labor shortages in the healthcare system but to be honest i i didn't really have a strong sense of consciousness about these Mm. things until much later in life when Mm. i went to college and had the chance to read about immigration policy before, um, I just thought it was like funny coincidence that mm. that a lot of Filipino aunts and, and my mom were nurses, or I just felt like it was um, like a coincidence that some immigrants were working in this particular occupational sector, like more like the professional ranks, and then other sets of immigrants were more in like service sector. But I, I, those were observations that I didn't really understand that deeply mm-hmm. until I like studied it in college. Mm. And, and what did your parents sort of express or how do you think they felt about being immigrants? Were they sort of a move forward folks or, um, you know, the, the big melting pot, you said you had lots of relatives that were sort of coming in and seeking asylum and, and becoming citizens and then relatives who, you know, were undocumented. I love the term you used always hiding. um uh, because that's what it amounts to um you know talk about what what they felt as immigrants and and what you came to understand about their experience personal experience yeah i it's interesting because my parents grew up in the philippines which has a lot of um american influence there so my mom and dad both went to schools where english was the medium of instruction they were exposed to American music and American pop culture. Like my dad was like super into the Beatles. My mom talks about watching like Popeye cartoons as a, as a young <laughs> girl. So um, on the one hand, they were familiar. On the other hand, of course, they went from a country where everyone looks like them to a country where it's much more mixed. Um, and I have this distinct memory of my mom. Um, she worked as a private nurse for uh, a rich white lady in a fancy part of L.A., and I knew that they had a sense of consciousness because as a kid, my mom would tell me, okay, when we're around, you know, her mm-hmm. rich white lady boss, <laughs> the way you have to speak has to be proper. So you mm-hmm. always have to, you know, say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You'd always make sure your clothes are, 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 are pressed and your shirt's tucked in. And then, you know, when we were around our family, all those things go out the window. And so I think that was the, I didn't have the words to articulate what she was doing there, but I think it was, you know, later on I was like, oh, it's like, she taught me code switching or she taught me, um, you know, I think I remember when I read W.E.B. Du Bois for the first time and it got exposed to this idea of double consciousness. And Mm. it made me think of that moment with my mom instructing me that like in this one context, we have to act one way and then another context, Mm. we act another way. So, um, yeah, I think in, in some senses I knew that we were different. That said, I, we grew up around a really robust Filipino community. And mm. so 
I didn't, and I went to a school with a lot of Filipinos from kindergarten through eighth grade. And so I didn't have a lot of the experiences that other like Filipinos or other Asian Americans talk about in school where they felt like they were othered. Mm. <laughs> like it was normal yeah. for people to bring rice to lunch. Um, it was normal for, for your parents to not know English and speak only mm-hmm. in their, or like to speak minimal English and speak in their language. Um, being a child of immigrants was more the norm than the anomaly. And, um, yeah, I think in that sense, that was, that was good for me. Mm. Um, is this sort of what prompted you to do, uh, study sociology? Gosh, um, I wish I was that, like, (laughs) I had that much of a... Like epiphany. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it sound like I was smarter than I was. Um... I don't think it was that clean of a story. <laughs> to be honest, I, you know, I went to Stanford for undergrad. Um, I went from growing up again in a really, you know, most of my friends in high school were black or Latino or Filipino. Mm. And then I went to college at Stanford and in my freshman dorm, it was just very, um, it was mostly white. It was predominantly white and also like rich. <laughs> mm. right. I grew up middle class. So I, it's not like I was like struggling to we weren't struggling to make ends meet but like the difference between middle class and like wealth oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah i felt like you know i i felt like very out of place it was culture shock for me um i didn't feel like anything that i thought was interesting was interesting to the people i lived with um and then I started taking classes in like Asian American studies. I took a Filipino American studies class. And in those spaces, I noticed that I felt number one, more comfortable. And number two, I felt really validated mm. in the sense that like, I could reference the fact that I like visited the Philippines as a kid very often and talk about what that meant. I could reference um, the fact that my parents uh, kept me tethered to two different cultures, American and Filipino, mm-hmm. or the fact that like we had not just mom and dad living in the house. We had like mom, dad, grandma, aunt, like these were um, forms of not, these were forms of knowledge. I didn't think that this, these aspects of my background or identity counted as knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it was actually my professors, um, you know, professors of color who were like, all those experiences you have to bring to the table, that, that stuff matters. Mm. Um, and they're the ones who said, hey, you know, you should become a professor. Mm. <laughs> and so at like 18 or 19 years old, I was like, okay, like I'll become a professor. And I like, I, I picked sociology very like arbitrarily. I was like, <laughs> I don't know where to go. Like, you know, there's history. And then my, one of my professors was like, you'll be bored. You'll hate it. Cause you'll be the archives all day. And another one was like, I was like, oh, well, I'll do anthropology. That seems cool. And then my other professor was like, oh, anthropology is dying. Don't do that. <laughs> um, and then I was like, I'll do literature. And then, you know, <laughs> another, another like, the same professor was like, oh, you're going to be, I don't think you're going to, I don't think it's for you. You're going to have to read too many like dead white guys. So um, I ended up choosing sociology as like a last resort. Um, and then. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what it was really, to be honest. And then I started grad school. I was like, oh, my, like, what it, what is this? But <laughs> I'm, I'm very stubborn and I'm not a quitter to my detriment. And I just was like, let's just keep going. And here I am. <laughs> um, 
So, so with Latinos, the Latinos of Asia, did you sort of experience sort of any backlash when when you made these strong connections between the Latino community and the Filipino community? You know, I was worried <laughs> because I had a very different title, but it was actually the editor that said, hey, actually, they, you know what they wanted to title it? There was a, one of the people I interviewed that made an off-the-cuff remark. Actually, a lot of them made this remark that Filipinos are like the Mexicans of Asia. Uh, other folks would say like, oh, like we're like the Hispanic Asians mm-hmm. or, you know. Those yeah, sort of, yeah, right. You know, uh, um, so the editor yeah. was like, oh my gosh, you should make the title title of your book, The Mexicans of Asia. And I was like, girl, I will get destroyed. <laughs> Someone will kill me, right? <laughs> I will get murdered. <laughs> no, number one, I get where you're coming from, but no. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, let's try Latinos of Asia because some folks did kind of say phrases like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And it's not tied, you know, I liked it because Latino is a very U.S. construct, whereas, mm-hmm. like, Mexico is a full-on country. Mm. Uh, but to answer your question, I was really scared that people would, I was scared that, like, Asian Americans would be like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, yeah. are you trying to divorce us? Mm. Uh, I thought Latinos would be like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you trying to be Latino? And I thought Filipinos would be like, what's wrong with you? We're just Filipino. So I, I anticipated a lot of like backlash and I was very scared for a while. But then when the book came out, it was mostly positive. Mm, it's mostly a lot of moments where folks, Filipino, Latinos and others were like, oh, shoot. Like, I always felt this. I just mm. didn't have the words for it. Mm-hmm. So your book kind of put the words for it. Yeah. Uh, once in a blue moon, I have a very like xenophobic filipino that like hates immigrants or hates latinos mm. that'll like, we're not latino um but and then they'll make up some like pseudo fake eugenic science to explain like why we're whatever the mm. you know yeah but um that's <laughs> super rare i think i only had like i can count on one hand that kind mm. of troll yeah um there was one person that said i'm gonna come to your campus and beat you up mm. and get, like so mad about it wow um, and so, but beyond that, it was, it was, it was 90, 90, 99%. Mm. Folks were validating of mm. the point of Great, great. So you point out that in the arts, Filipinos have often been portrayed or presented as Latinos. Talk about some of these instances and um, what that means in a time when a word like appropriation is not a positive thing. Yeah, it's funny because. Hollywood has very narrow ideas of who counts as like a black person, a Latino person, an Asian person. So I remember meeting some Filipinos that were, you know, aspiring actors or actors and they would say, you know, they go to an audition and then the casting director who was white would say like, oh, Latino casting is is last week or we're casting for an Asian person because your perception of Asian is East Asian. And um, and then I, I started to think, like, who are the Filipinos that have broke into the mainstream? And the first person I thought of was Lou Diamond Phillips, who's like the like Chicano of Chicanos, but is actually Filipino. He played uh, Richie Valens in La Bamba. 
I think he was often cast as like a Latino character in films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I thought about this like uh, dance music artist when I was a kid named Jocelyn Enriquez and how she was kind of marketed as like Latin mm. freestyle music. Um, and then I kept finding more and more examples of this. So uh, when I watched West Side Story for the first time, I remember looking at one of the characters, it's supposed to be Puerto Rican. And then I looked up his bio, and he was actually Filipino. Mm, really? <laughs> yeah. And so um, Vanessa Hudgens played a Latina character. Um, Olivia Rodrigo, who, who wasn't around when I wrote this book, but like she talks about being perceived as as Latina. Huh. So it's um, it was interesting to see a lot of Filipinos that were like in the public eye, like mm-hmm. folks comprehend it, and so the go-to identity they turned to was mostly like Latino. Yeah. 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 You know, you know, being a white person (laughs) and growing up in a very sort of white environment, it, 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 what, you know, because where I grew up in Chicago, they, they were sort of, they were Latinos in the sense that they were mostly from Mexico. But when you're in New York, it's they're mostly Puerto Ricans. There's sort of few fewer Mexicans. And I lived in Texas, of course, it's really, you know, a lot of, lot, a lot of folks from Mexico, but a lot of folks also from Guatemala and Honduras and Venezuela. And, it, you know, it sort of strikes you, like you say, you're, you're kind of clueless coming out of high school and you think... You can get into get into college, and you think, oh no, there's this difference, and there's this different, extreme difference between these cultures, and you know, to lump them all together in a word like Latino <laughs> or, oh, or just yeah. Asian, right, doesn't do it justice. You know, I still sort of have to explain to folks in my family. You know, again, they live in the white suburbs, and they, you know. What, what, what does that mean? What is, you know, what's the difference between an asylum seeker and an immigrant or, you know, or, you know, these various different kinds of Asians. My mother's like, oh, they're, you know, everyone's Chinese who's Asian. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, that's very different. <laughs> uh, again, it's just exposure. And of course, the way folks are represented in, in, in Hollywood, in films, you say, you know, your parents grew up watching American cinema, TV, and, you know, how does that filter through in an Asian country or a Latino country, um, that that racism that's there, you know? Oh, for sure. Uh, Gary, you're doing the good work, so thank you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that in, in some ways I don't want to pretend, like, as, as even though I was Filipino and a person of color, that I was, like, when it came to race, I was, like, automatically enlightened. Because I think there are examples of me conflating groups as well so i remember um you know like rich white people (laughs) white folks jewish folks it's all white to me right um i remember like with with black folks my friends in high school who were nigerian were very like um cognizant about the difference between being from a nigerian family versus an african-american family um, East Asians, for the most part, I like conflated myself as a kid because I just thought we were like the different ones. And, you know, I, I, so I don't want to like pretend that like folks of color have it right all the time because it's not true at all. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I've always been intrigued at the folks in a group that don't fit. Um, they always intrigue me. So I remember, you know, uh, as a kid, I, I'm on the West Coast, so I grew up around Mexican Americans. I remember the first time I saw 
a black person, a person who read as black, speaks Spanish. And I was like, huh, <laughs> like, what's, what, like, this is confusing to me mm-hmm. as a kid. And then I learned about, like, Afro, I, I, we didn't have that term back then, but, like, right. Cubans who were, who were black, right. or Dominicans who were, who presented as black. Yeah. Um, or Filipinos, to be honest, I was like, I get it wrong all the time, where I have students who I think are Mexican and are actually <laughs> Filipino. So, um, yeah, I just thought, I always thought race was really interesting in that way, because even though we have these categories that people live by, they're just so messy and they, they're not perfect. It's not mm. like a math equation where it's like perfectly fits every time. It, 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 it changes with the context mm. and the situation that you're in. Yeah. It's still when you fill out like a survey or something and they ask about race, you just think, oh, God, like, you know, you just kind of feel dirty answering. I I do, you know, and I think oh, just white or, you know, or non-Hispanic or just these weird terms. I'm thinking, oh, gosh, there's this whole spectrum. Right. And you're just even if you're breaking it down into 30 different categories, it's not enough. Right. <laughs> it's not enough. And I mean, even like, let's just take the gay scene, right? I remember, uh, you know, I have a friend. She studies um, Middle Eastern folks. And yeah. They, they're categorized as white technically, but aren't necessarily treated as white. Right. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, even in the gay scene, it's really interesting to see these, like, see these racial dynamics play out. I remember oh. when I was reading the book. <laughs> I was like, wow, there's like a subset of Filipinos that like hang out with all the East Asians mm. and they kind of like have that phenotype also mm. of like, and then I see the other Filipinos who look more like racially ambiguous and, you know, they, sometimes they'll be rolling with like black folks and Latino mm-hmm. folks. And then the Filipinos were like multiracial or like, they can hang out with like the mainstream, like we ho twinks. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. So it's not, <laughs> like race is interesting. And then race in certain communities, I think is also very fascinating. Um, yeah. I think sometimes I write because I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. Uh-huh. So here's my opportunity to like work it out. Right. Right. I want, I, I want to figure it out. I, I help produce a local film festival. So you see tons of films and I, and I love documentaries and just the queer documentaries about people of different races. They're, they're just amazing. And you think, oh, there, there's such unique stories out there to be told and to understand, understand and you learn so much from them. So uh, what prompted you to write your new book, Browning Gay in L.A.? Um, uh, you share a lot of your history as well as stories of others. Um, yeah, my my origin stories to this project are similarly as unsophisticated as my entree into sociology. I was at UCLA getting my PhD in sociology. And, you know, when you get a PhD, it, it's all about sort of developing an expertise in one very small area. So mine was immigration and race. Uh, I was obviously interested in that for personal reasons, but at the same time, I was going to school at UCLA and Westwood and then also going through my like queer coming of age. So I was like at the club five to seven times a week. And it's interesting because there was this juxtaposition between me like studying and reading and, and hearing lectures about immigration and communities of color formally. And then, like, at 10 o'clock, I'd be in a world where everyone was 
from an immigrant background or child of immigrants was from a community of color, but then everyone happened to also be queer. Hmm. And I thought, wow, there's all these stories, these amazing stories that are happening like right in front of me that I never get to see when I'm formally studying it. And so I thought that um, that's just weird. And so I was at first very, you know, scared to, I was still very, I was like a baby gay. So I was like, still scared to pursue this as a topic because you get like essentially branded with what you study. Um, but it just kept, I couldn't let it go. I just, I felt like I needed to write about these amazing worlds that I was part of. Um, and then on a more personal note, it was during a time when I felt like, um, let's just say my parents weren't seeing eye to eye with me and my, my gayness. And so I felt like, doing this study where I got to interview other queer sons of immigrants from different backgrounds, it, it helped me develop a blueprint for how to navigate my own experiences mm-hmm. when I didn't have one. Mm. I, in a lot of, like to put it bluntly, I felt like there was many years with my family where I felt like I couldn't see what tomorrow would look like. I just wanted to see what tomorrow could be. And I didn't really have a model for that. And mm. so doing these interviews and, and meeting other folks that have been through what I'd gone through and were at different stages of this process, it, it was very um it was very eye-opening and very it was very um healing mm. <laughs> and healing for me to hear these stories as well. Oh, I bet. I bet. So um when some consider the queer male experience of people of color Terms like toxic masculinity and machismo often spring to mind. Um, Is this fair or does it sort of smack of racism at worst or at least a misunderstanding of that queer experience of people of color? Yeah, I think um, I think there is this this and I hear it all the time from both from all different people of all different backgrounds that, um, oh, you know, like black people or or latinos or or filipinos they're they're much more stringent about masculinity and they they sort of lay the smack down more <laughs> like yeah and you know i can see where folks are coming from but at the same time you know there's there's lots of different spaces where white gay people experience harsh punishments as well like if you're i, I assume like amish and gay or mormon and gay that's not very fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I but I, I came to learn that there's a lot of stereotypes that like communities of color are more homophobic than say, or more traditional than, than like white gays who are more liberal on the issue. Um, and I, I, I think I wanted to push back on that a little bit because I did come to meet people of color who were much more nuanced and not, it wasn't that like black and white. Um, I, I knew a lot of folks that were very embracing and accepting of their queer family members, but it just looked different than like what you see on like a white television show mm-hmm. where someone like has a dramatic coming out. <laughs> right. And then like, a reckoning between them and their whatever their loved ones and then it's all sort of like hunky dory by the end of the episode or the end of the movie and so it was it's it's a little more complex because i do think 
what I do know is that for people of color who are sometimes also like socioeconomically disadvantaged as well, the repercussions of being kicked out of the house or rejected um, mm-hmm. hits harder than right. say someone like a, a white middle class gay kid. Not to say that their experience isn't tough as well, but um, it's just qualitatively different. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, there are still far too many instances of racism, sexism, and anti-trans sentiment and more within our own community, um, Mm -hmm. often in places that should be safe. Um, As a diverse community, what can we do to confront and end such unsavory attitudes? Yeah, that's a tough one, because I do think that the way the... There's all sorts of isms in gay spaces. I think race racism is one of them but my gosh the way people discriminate based on body body type right age or um no no femmes no fats no asians yeah i hate to say it i hate to have to use those words because there's it's they're so ugly and they're so repulsive and and denigrating and people don't put on their grinder profiles they're thinking it you know right right um yeah, it's it's hard, and I think that there's this there's a there's a there's this amazing sociologist in Canada. I, I, his name's escaped me. His name's Adam. Oh my God, is it Adam Grant? Something like that. Mm. But he, he did this study, and he talked about how with gay men of color, the way they gain entree into gay spaces is by embodying the stereotypes mm. that they are associated with. So like the Asian bottom or submissive person um the right. latino like poppy poppy chulo or the the black like stallion mm. character um and so i think there's like an incentive sometimes to buy like playing into the stereotypes mm-hmm. um that may lead folks to make that conclusion oh maybe it's like mm. folks are more concerned about masculinity i do think like we're exposed to more gender expression um these days because of social media but I, we have a long way to go uh, as someone that is I've talked about this with, with lots of folks who are on the bottom of the desirability totem pole. Like it's a, uh, <laughs> there's something that happens to your psyche when you right. feel marginalized. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I guess my rule of thumb would be like for all queer people in queer spaces, like just ask yourself who's not included, who's being excluded. Mm. Yeah. How do we figure out a way to like include them? That's mm-hmm. such an easy rule of thumb that I think will do a, a, a lot of have a lot of positive impact. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know it's shocking. I, again, white boy. I remember moving to when I moved to Dallas, Texas in 1985. You know, I, I had friends pe- friends of color. Um, you know, Latino friends, uh, black friends. And they would say, oh, we don't go. We don't go to that club. And I said, oh, why? You don't like it? They're like, they won't let us in. We have to have three forms of ID. I mean, this was the 1980s, not the 1880s. You know what I mean? It was so shocking to me. Maybe coming from a more diverse city. But, you know, if I really looked into, you know, even Chicago in the early 80s, I'd probably find that same sort of racism. And it's even an issue here in the Castro. It's even an issue here in in California in certain bars. We're not going to let trans folks in. We're not going to let, you know, too many people of color in. You know, it's just like the old days when 
a bar wouldn't let in, you know, gay people or, or, or women they perceived as too butch. Um, it, it, it's just ugly and it's something, you know, we're, we're exploring as a community and it, and it's still a problem. Yeah. I think one of the, the antidotes for me to, to getting through some of these experiences is been reading history. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I am a geek when it comes to gay history and I'm mm. particularly on to reading stories about like black people that lived during the gay liberation movement. Um, I remember I found this like amazing interviews of Byron Rustin mm. just, talking, just talking, just talking about his yeah. life um, or Sylvia Rivera, just like talking about her life. And yep. there's, there's black people and people of color that were part of ACT UP. There's trans people that are part of the, the, the movement, in the seventies and sixties. Yep. Like, I wish that we had more opportunity to give those mm-hmm. stories airtime. Yeah. Cause I think that would, that would really do something to people's, that would like work against people's inclination to like close ranks or like to like close the doors. Yes. Uh, when they realize how much of our freedoms today are, are built on people coming together uh-huh. as opposed to excluding. Right, people. right, right. And, and our, you know, when, when we rise together as a group, you know, a diverse group, um, we can really understand, you know, going back to the way human rights campaigns sort of dealt with trans issues, you know, in the 80s. Oh, no, we're going to focus on marriage. Oh, we're going to focus on this. And, and you know, they've had to apologize. Oh, you know, we're mortified that our predecessors made these decisions, you know, they're, they're bad decisions. They were, you know, poorly constructed, poorly argued and, and, you know, not very well thought out. Um, you know, so we've all got a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Cause I, I, I'm also happy to be critical of like straight spaces as well. Like, Oh, yeah. Um, I was chatting with someone about how, yeah, like, yes, gay people of color get invited to the wedding or the family parties or whatever. People ask about them, but it stops there. And there's not a lot of effort from straight folks to, like, learn about gay history or or queer culture. And I I feel really sad that, like, Mm -hmm. yes, while I may, may be at this family party, like, the topics we talk about are still going to be very heteronormative yeah. at the end of the day. And I still feel like I can't talk about mm. queer stuff in right, this space. Right. Is it really an accepting place? Not yeah, really. Without so ed- think, editing yourself. Yeah. And I think that there's some, there's like a parallel there to say like, Oh, into like a white gay space. I should be able to talk about, you know, what it's like to be a, a person of color yeah. or, or immigrant issues. Like, I think we all have work to do. I, I'll be I'll be the first to tell you that I didn't know much about trans issues, trans right. women of color, um, the violence that that that's faced mm-hmm. until fairly like the last ten years or yep, something. Yeah, um, yep. So we all have work to do. I know we're um, it's gonna expire. Yeah. <laughs> come back on Great, you, great. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I could talk to you for hours and hours and uh, I'd love to have you back. Um, best of luck with with Brown and Gay in L.A. Um, you can get it at Sonoma County Library if you like or you can buy it from your local bookstore. Um, thanks again for joining us and really congratulations on this wonderful book, Anthony.
Thank you. There's a lot happening in the coming months. So before the holiday whirlwind begins, we here at Outbeat Radio put together a calendar of core events of what's happening now through the new year. Monday, November 20th, the Transgender Day of Remembrance has been observed annually on November 20th as the day to memorize our trans sisters and brothers who have been murdered. It is a day to draw attention to the continued violence endured by transgender people. Check the websites of Positive Images and LGBTQ Connection for local events. If you are able, this is a great time to support the efforts of the Transgender Legal Defense Fund and Education Fund with a donation. Learn more about this incredible organization at transgenderlegal.org. Friday, November 24th, Elf the Musical opens at 6th Street Playhouse in Santa Rosa. One Christmas Eve, a young orphan crawls into Santa's bag of toys and is transported to the North Pole. But he grows up unaware he is actually a human until his enormous size and poor toy-making habits make him face the truth. With Santa's blessing, Buddy travels to New York City to discover his true identity. Upon learning that his father is on the naughty list and his half-brother doesn't even believe in Santa, Buddy becomes determined to help them rediscover their Christmas spirit. The show runs through December 17th. Adult tickets are $29 through $51. Youth tickets are $19. On sale now at 6thStreetPlayhouse.com. Thursday, November 30th, Dining Out for Life happens at many local restaurants, cafes, and wineries. Sonoma County's largest dine and donate event directly benefits Food for Thought. Make your reservations soon as restaurants fill up quickly. A complete list of participating establishments and more information can be found at fftfoodbank.org. Also, this is a good time to sign up as a volunteer. Ambassadors are needed for this event on November 30th. Please help out Food for Thought, who has been feeding the hungry in Sonoma County for decades. Friday, December 1st is World AIDS Day. This year's theme is World AIDS Day 35, Remember and Commit. This annual event serves as a reminder of the global struggle to end HIV-related stigma, an opportunity to honor those we have lost, and a rallying cry to committing to working toward a day when HIV is no longer a public health threat. The first World AIDS Day took place in 1988, providing a platform to raise awareness about HIV-AIDS and honor the lives of those impacted by the epidemic. December 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 9th, and 10th, Occidental Community Choir presents Comfort and Joy, directed by Gage Purdy. This West County chorale is pleased to present a joyous winter concert of songs and spoken word that soothe and inspire, celebrate resilience and tradition, and offers a keen sense of community. The show will offer its own choir composers music from home, blended with contemporary and classic compositions spanning many genres and cultures. 
Tickets are $25 and are now available at occidentalchoir.org slash tickets. Children 12 and under with an online seat reservation that only costs $1, a great deal for the entire family. All but the final concert happens at Occidental Center for the Arts, 3850 Doris Murphy Court in Occidental. The Sunday, December 10th concert will be performed at Glacier Center, 547 Mendocino Avenue in Santa Rosa. Friday, December 1st, Russian River Sisters bingo tickets for 2024 go on sale. Now is your chance to get tickets to upcoming events that sell out in a matter of hours. The bingo events benefit various local nonprofits. Bingo happens at the Lodge Room at Santa Rosa Vets Hall, 1351 Maple Avenue in Santa Rosa. For ages 18 and older, doors open at 5.30 and games begin at 7 p.m. Tickets can be purchased at rrsisters.org. You can also find out about their various fundraising events. It's a great time to donate to the sisters to support their efforts as they support the many local nonprofits that serve our community. December 16th, which is a Saturday, San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus will present the Holiday Spectacular, a benefit concert for Face to Face at Green Music Center at Sonoma State University in Rohnert Park. Over 250 singing members, the entire concert, will dazzle you with classic holiday favorites and some new surprises. Tickets cost between $25 and $110 and are on sale now at sfgmc.org. Saturday, December 16th, Forbidding Kiss Live offers their holiday show. This is a sexy vaudeville show created by outbeat friend Cheryl King. The show has gathered a regular, dedicated audience. It's a fun, fun night. It will be a festive night for the holiday season. Come join the throngs of party people for this extravaganza of burlesque, comedy, song and dance, and more. It happens once a month at the California in Santa Rosa. It is a safe space. Only 18 and older, please. Cash bar and tasty nibbles are available. For tickets and more information, go to caltheater.com. Thank you for listening this evening. Please listen to Outbeat Radio every Sunday evening. You can listen to previous shows at OutbeatRadio.org. Next week, Greg Moralia will be here with Outbeat News in Depth. Mary and I will return November 19th with more Outbeat Collage Out in the Arts. Enjoy your Halloween and the Day of the Dead. Please be safe and sane. And we look forward to your joining us again next month. Good night.